0: Hello, my name is Ben McNaughton. I'm a consultant paediatrician with a special interest in paediatric respiratory medicine based here in the Royal Belfast Hospital for Sick Children. This next talk focuses on the management of children and young people presenting with acute severe asthma. I'm going to deliver the first half of the talk before handing over to Christopher Flanagan, paediatric intensivist, who will take over for the second half. So why did we choose to do a talk on the management of severe asthma? Well, Firstly, asthma is common in children and young people. It's estimated that 1.1 million children in the UK are receiving treatment for asthma, which works out at approximately 9% of all children and young people. Importantly too, asthma still kills. The National Review of Asthma Deaths in 2014 showed that within the period of the review there were 28 deaths in children and young people. Of those deaths, only one was felt to have been adequately managed. This is a worrying statistic and we do know since the National Review of asthma deaths in 2014 that the UK continues to have a higher mortality rate in children and young people with asthma than the rest of Europe. Although many of the recommendations uh, published in in that guideline and that review were focusing on outpatient management of children uh, and trying to prevent the acute exacerbations that we're going to talk about today it is inevitable that we're going to see them and it is imperative that when a child presents with an acute severe exacerbation of asthma, we manage them appropriately to prevent morbidity and mortality. We're going to use a case-based discussion today to talk through the management. We'll look at some of the controversies um, and some of the unique challenges that we face when we're managing children with acute severe asthma. This is a fictitious case, but one that most of you will be familiar with. The scenario is that you're working in a district general hospital and the triage nurse has come to ask you to see a patient urgently who she's brought directly from triage to the resuscitation room. It is an eight-year-old, known asthmatic, with previous PICU admissions with wheeze. They have admitted to relatively poor compliance of late with their uh, regular inhaled therapy and they're presented with a two-day history of cough followed by a one-day history of increased work of breathing and shortness of breath. Their weight is estimated to be 30 kilos, and you go to assess them in the, tri- in the resuscitation department. You perform a structured A, B, C, D, E assessment, and find the following clinical findings. Assessment of airway reveals that it's patent, although the patient is struggling to talk in full sentences. Their oxygen saturations are 80% in room air. They have they are neck. With marked increased work of breathing and use of accessory muscles, a prolonged expiratory phase on auscultation, and bilateral wheeze with reduced air entry um, throughout both lung fields. They are tachycardic with a pulse of 135 beats per minute. Their capillary refill time and blood pressure are appropriate are, are normal. Disability-wise, they are alert and orientated. Their blood sugar is slightly elevated, 7.1, and pupils are equal and reactive to light. And on exposure, you note that they have. Some eczema in the flexures. You decide that the most likely um, diagnosis is an acute severe exacerbation of the asthma, and this falls into the acute severe asthma category as outlined in the BTS and sign guidelines. Criteria for this is shown on the slide. They don't yet have any life threatening features, uh, and so that does not push them into the life threatening category at this stage. And as a result, you decide to implement three key clinical treatments at this stage. The first is oxygen, the second nebulizers, and the third steroids. And we'll talk about each of those in more depth now. BTS Inside guidelines would recommend that all children present with life threatening or asthma or with oxygen saturations less than 94% in room air should be supplied with um, high flow oxygen via a tight-fitted face mask or nasal cannula um, to, and, and the flow adjusted appropriately to maintain their saturations in the normal range of 94 to 98%. Children presenting with severe asthma uh, or with saturations of less than 92% in room air should also be administered oxygen-driven nebulizers. There's good evidence for the use of salbutamol nebulizers. And the BTS and SIG guidelines would recommend that children um, with SATS less than 92% should receive oxygen-driven salbutamol nebulizers frequently, every 20 to 30 minutes, um, during that initial present pre- or in that initial resuscitation period. The dose for an eight-year-old would be 2.5 to 5 milligrams, but in reality we'd be given the 5 milligram dose. There's also good evidence for the use of hypotropium bromide in children presenting with severe asthma in combination with salbutamol. Although the guidelines would recommend that salbutamol is administered first and ipotropium added if there's a poor response to the initial beta agonist, um, actually, in practice, we would often combine the two from the outset and administer three sets of back-to-back nebulizers containing salbutamol and ipotropium bromide. The dose for ipotropium bromide for this 8-year-old patient would be 250 milligram or micrograms. There's a little bit more controversy around the use of nebulized magnesium sulphate and this is something which um, there has been some debate about over the years. We are keen to keep this interactive and I'd encourage you at this point to go over to the YouTube chat and enter into the chat at this stage whether you would, in your own practice, give or choose to give magnesium sulphate at this stage. Type in yes if you would and no if you wouldn't. So as we'll discuss later, magnesium sulfate is traditionally used intravenously um, as a second-line agent in children who have, with severe asthma who have um, not responded to first-line agents. use of nebulised magnesium sulfate is a little bit more controversial. BTS and SIGN guidelines recommend that there's no real role for nebulised magnesium sulfate in children with mild and moderate symptoms. However, they do suggest the consideration to consider adding um, 150 milligrams of magnesium sulfate to each magnesium or th salbutamol and ipotropium bromide nebulizer over the first um, two hours of an acute exacerbation, particularly in children with acute severe symptoms or those with a relatively short uh, uh, and sudden onset of symptoms. This is largely based on data coming from the MAGNETIC trial, which published in 2013. Um, in which a subgroup analysis suggested a possible role in, the, in that group of children who had short and rapid onset of symptoms. The level of evidence is grade C, and actually, since the publication of the BTS and sign guidelines, there's since been a much larger trial um, published uh, in JAMA, which took place across seven centres uh, in Canada and um, recruited over 8,000 patients. And when they looked at their primary outcome, which was hospitalisation rate, they did not notice any significant difference. Uh, between the groups who received magnesium sulfate nebulizers in, in um, combination with the normal bronchodilators and those who just received salbutamol and ipotropium. So would it be wrong to administer at this stage? No, but would, would, could, is there enough evidence to say that we should routinely be using nebulized magnesium sulfate? Not at this current moment in time. The third intervention at this stage that we'd want to give is, is steroids. There is good evidence to suggest that early administration of steroids in acute severe exacerbations of asthma lead to improved outcomes. There are a number of choices of steroids, um, and these include oral prednisolone, oral dexamethasone, or IV hydrocortisone. Again, there might be some variation in your normal practice, and be keen to see what you would choose in this situation. So head over to the YouTube chat and enter into the chat what you would choose to administer this patient at this time. So as we mentioned, there is good evidence to support the use of oral corticosteroids or or steroids in acute severe asthma. And actually, it's important to bear in mind that oral um, steroids have been shown to be as effective um, as IV steroids in the management of acute severe asthma. And so IV steroids should really be reserved for those cases where a patient is unable to tolerate the oral form. Most clinicians are probably familiar with the use of oral prediness as a first line as a first-line steroid choice. This is, this is something which the BTS guidelines also support. They recommend dosing of 10 milligrams for less than two-year-olds. 20 milligrams for those two to five year olds, and 30 to 40 milligrams for those who are greater than five, or 1 to 2 milligrams per kilogram up to a maximum of 40 milligrams. And often, except in those patients who maybe have a history of difficult to treat asthma, a three day course is sufficient. There has been a move, however, in a number of centres towards a single dose of oral dexamethasone as an alternative to oral PRED. This is based on on a number of studies which really were non-inferiority studies to show that administering a single dose of dexamethasone was non-inferior to using a three-day course of prednisolone. Advocates of a single dose of dexamethasone would argue that it is better tolerated generally and more palatable, that it only involves one dose and you can watch that patient taking that dose in the ED department as opposed to relying on parents to administer two subsequent doses at home. And actually, when centres have calculated the cost, um, a number of centres have estimated that it would be cost about 10 to 20% of the cost would, for them to supply a three-day course of prednisolone. Those again, arguing against um, single dose of dexamethasone would suggest that there is clear dosing guidelines um, around prednisolone. People have a greater feel for how to manage patients with waning courses of prednisolone, that dexamethasone is more difficult to store in primary care, and that these studies don't prove that dexamethasone is any better; they just simply show that it's non-inferior. So why should we change practice on that basis? The jury's out, and certainly at the minute, I think I know centres are using both um, approaches, and I think it comes down to what you, as a clinician, are comfortable. What your normal practice is, but also what the, the, the experience of the centre or the institution in which you're working. In children who can't tolerate oral steroids, then IV hydrocortisone has been recommended. Um, and the dose of IV hydrocortisone would be 4 mg per kilo, up to a maximum of 100 milligrams, which would be the case in this scenario every six hours. So we've put our patient on high flow oxygen. We have given three back-to-back nebs. We chose to administer salbutamol and ipratropium, but didn't opt to administer magnesium sulfate nebulizers. And we have given them a 100 milligram dose of IV hydrocortisone. We did try oral bread, but they vomited, and 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 we move on to reassess them. So overall, there's not been a significant change. They still find it hard to talk in full sentences, but they are ways patent. Their oxygen saturations have improved on the height on the 15 litres of, of oxygen via the non-rebreather. They remain tachycardic with no significant change in their chest symptoms. They are slightly more tachycardic with a pulse of 160 um, probably a combination of the fact that they're unwell but in addition to the salbutamol nebulizers which we've administered and no significant change in regards to disability and exposure. At this stage, we do have venous blood gas. It, should be, it is important to note that blood gases are not routinely recommended in children present with acute severe asthma, but should be considered in those with life-threatening features or those who are failing to respond to the initial first-line therapies. In practice, they often the, the opportune time to do so, to check the blood gas, is when inserting an IV cannula because you feel that you're pro- progressing towards second-line intravenous therapies. In this case, we can see that there's a very, very mild uh, metabolic acidosis, but the blood gas is otherwise satisfactory. We also request a chest X-ray at this stage. Again, like blood gases, this is not routinely recommended in children who respond well to first-line therapies. However, it should be considered if there's a failure to respond to initial therapies or if there's concerns about um, subcutaneous emphysema, persistent unilateral signs suggest suggesting pneumothorax, Um, or life-threatening asthma, which is refractory to treatment. Again in this scenario we see some hyperinflation which is what we would expect in a child present with asthma, but no other significant chest x-ray findings. Given that the patient hasn't responded as adequately as we would like to the first-line therapies, we now need to think think about administration of second-line therapies And there are three main intravenous therapies we would consider at this stage. IV magnesium sulfate, IV salbutamol, bolus and continuous infusion, and IV aminophilin, again, normally a bolus, followed by a continuous infusion. Again, a bit like steroids, there's probably some variation in practice between clinicians and centres. I'd be keen to hear what you do in your centres, so please head over again to the YouTube chat and enter into the chat your order of preference for using these three agents in relation to this case. As mentioned, there probably will be some variation in the responses we've received in the YouTube chat with regards to this the, the preference of intravenous bronchodilators. This is not unexpected. We know that there is a variation between clinicians and centres. And part of the reason for the variation is that there is certainly, although there's some evidence supporting the use of IV magnesium sulphate, there's, there's a lack of evidence advocating for the use of aminophilin over salbutamol or vice versa. In 2015, Peruca published results of a, of a survey of practice across 24 EDs in the UK. They looked at the use of IV bronchodilators in these centres and there was a total of 110 cases of children who received IV therapy. This did show a wide variation in practice. IV Magnesium Sulphate was the most commonly administered IV Bronchodilator in, and with up to 61% of the children receiving IV um, Magnesium Sulphate either, either in isolation or combined with other IV therapies. There is good evidence to suggest that IV, hydro, IV um, Magnesium Sulphate acts faster than aminophil and salbutamol in improving Patient symptoms and the BTS and sign guidelines do routine or do recommend it, it as um, first-line intravenous agent in children with acute severe asthma refractory to first line treatments. The dose of IV magnesium sulfate is 40 milligrams per kilo, up to a maximum dose of 2 grams, and this is administered for 20 minutes. The peru case study showed that salbutamol was the second most commonly used IV bronchodilator with 56% of patients receiving salbutamol either as a bolus or confusion or both or either in combination or in isolation. Although there's good evidence to support the use of nebulized salbutamol um, in, in patients present with acute severe asthma, there is less information about how IV salbutamol should be used to support nebulised treatment. There is some evidence to suggest that a bolus of um, IV salbutamol at 15 mics per kilo over 10 minutes can improve symptoms in a severe attack. And this should be and it should be noted, however, that the maximum dose is 250 micrograms, which is reached at a relatively low weight of 16 kilograms. A continuous IV infusion should be considered if there is. Ref- Concern about the administration of nebulized therapy or in life-threatening an asthma where there's life-threatening features with um, refractory to first line treatments. Again, there's some some clarity needed with regards to dosing. The starting dose is recommended as one microgram per kilo per minute. The guidelines do suggest that this can be increased to five micrograms per kilo per minute as required in a PICU setting. It is important, however, to be careful with the dosing of IV salbutamol. The adult, although there's no clear guidelines on the upper limit of doses, apart from saying a potential to increase to five mics within the ICU setting, should be noted that the adult um, dose uh, maximum dose is 20 mics per minute. Beyond these doses, uh, this dose and in higher dosing of of, of IV salbutamol, there is concern that actually we may not be conferring an additional therapeutic effect. However, we are much more likely to experience the effects of salbutamol toxicity and side effects. Aminophylline was the third most commonly used of the IV bronchodilators in, in this study with 47% of patients receiving aminophylline. There was one randomised controlled trial which involving 100 patients which did show Um, that aminophilin reduced symptom severity in children with acute severe asthma. However, um, it is important to note that in that trial, the patients who received it received a loading dose, which is generally double what we currently administer in the UK, and a number of patients had to be withdrawn from the study because of nausea and vomiting. BTS guidelines do recommend considering it in patients with acute severe asthma refracted first-line therapies um, but do advocate the use of magnesium sulphate in the first instance. Aminophylline can be given as a bolus first um, of 5mg per kilo, followed um, by a continuous infusion of 1mg per kilo per hour. It's important to mention for both Salbutamol and Aminophylline, um, there, there, there are significant side effect profiles uh, and patients being commenced on both should be, should be on ECG monitoring and have regular electrolyte checks. Magnesium sulphate, probably better tolerated. However, again, we, should, we would recommend that they should be on a, a cardiac monitor and also um, with close observation of their blood pressure as hypotension can be a common problem. So we decided to administer IV magnesium sulphate and reassess the patient afterwards. We've given a dose of 1.2 grams over 20 minutes. Unfortunately, there's been no significant improvement or change in the clinical picture from our previous reassessment. And so we decided to try a second line intravenous therapy. At this stage, we opt for aminophilin with a loading dose of 150 milligrams over 20 minutes and a continuous infusion of one milligram per kilo per hour, which is 30 milligrams per hour. We then reassess the patient after the period on the aminophilin and we find out that actually, if anything, there's been a, a deterioration. The airway remains patent, but we're only getting one word answers. Oxygen saturations are down to 89% despite 15 litres of oxygen via non-rebreather mask. Patient patient's still tachyneic, but the respiratory effort is poor. Much less air moving through the chest um, and the wheeze is less audible. They're quite tachycardic with a pulse of 180 and their cap refill time is less than two seconds. Blood pressure is lower end of the normal range. Patient does remain orientated. Their blood sugar is 10 and pupils are equal and reactive. And my question for you at this stage is, would you intubate this patient now? Again, head over to the YouTube chat, put your answer in, and we'll move on to discuss them. So I hope that most of you have said, no, not yet. Certainly we're getting, starting to become very worried about this patient. They've got features of acute, severe asthma starting to develop maybe features of life-threatening asthma and they've been refractory to a number of first and second-line treatments. However, the decision to, to intubate a patient with life-threatening asthma is not one that should be taken lightly. The process itself of intubation is not without risk and will also almost certainly make the patient worse before they get better. As Chris will move on to talk about, this is a decision which needs careful consideration. Before doing so, it is important that we have maximised medical management. Certainly at this stage, even if we're not intubated, it would be important to discuss the patient with regional or or your local paediatric intensive care unit. This gives them the opportunity to give some advice with regards to management. If there's perhaps something that hasn't been thought about or hasn't been done but also then makes them aware of the patient and gets them allows them to start the ball rolling in terms of mobilising retrieval team um, and, and getting organised in case this is something which is going to deteriorate further and proceed to intubation. In terms of medical management, at this stage we haven't tried IV salbutamol yet and at this stage it would be appropriate then to administer a bolus. In this case it's going to be a maximum of 250 micrograms IV bolus, followed by a continuing infusion of 1 mic per kilo per minute, but we would Cap then at the maximum of 20 mics per minute. The the evidence for high flow and NIV use in asthma is very limited. There was a recent systematic review which included two randomized controlled trials looking at the use of NIV in addition to normal asthma treatment. This did show some improvement in asthma severity scores, however the numbers were very low and there was felt to be a significant risk of bias. The BTS and sign guidelines suggest that although it would appear that it would be safe to use them in this situation, there is there's insufficient evidence to make, them, to make any real recommendation about the use of NIV or high flow. However, in this situation where the patient is deteriorating, it would be reasonable to commence high flow therapy and, and, and to try to use it to potentially negate the need to proceed to intubation. For an eight-year-old, we would be considering starting at 35 to 40 litres per minute and titrating the oxygen as required. Finally, in this sort of scenario, it's always really important to have a think about whether or not we are actually treating, have got the correct diagnosis and are we treating the right thing. We have a patient who is getting worse despite our treatments and this can happen with asthma and we do see it happening. However, this is important whenever we are administering treatments to be thinking, is there potentially another reason as to why this patient is deteriorating that we haven't thought about? Are we missing a diagnosis? Could this be anaphylaxis, for example? Do we need to give adrenaline? Or are there further therapies we need to be thinking about, such as heliox and ketamine, which Chris will talk about in his presentation when he picks up? So we've started the IV cell butamol. We've placed the patient on high flow. But shortly after, we notice that, that there's been a marked deterioration. They're drowsy with a reduced level of consciousness and a very poor respiratory effort with a silent chest. They've become hypotensive, and when we repeat the gl- blood gas, we noted that there's a um, mixed m- respiratory metabolic acidosis with a pH of 7.02, CO2 of 11.3, bicarb of 17, base excess of minus 4, and a lactate of 4. The glucose is elevated probably in combination of the stress but also the steroids that we've administered, and the potassium is starting to drop at point And at this point, I'm going to hand over to Chris Flanagan to take us through the remainder of the case. Thank you.